for centuries. They have been trying to keep us where they want us. Why do demons disappear when you die? And yet humans leave these nasty skeletons behind. We'll get our children back. Welcome to The Authority, Slate's His Dark Materials podcast. It's Season 1, Episode 3, The Spies. We're Slate's resident scholars of experimental theology. I'm Laura Miller, and my demon is a sea otter named Saki. I'm Dan Coyce, and my demon is a prairie vole named Gilda. Hi, Laura. Hi, Dan. Now, in this episode, Lyra is captured by the gobblers and then almost immediately rescued by the Egyptians, who take her into their fold as they travel to a beyond roping, if that's the correct pronunciation, I have no idea, which is a big gathering to discuss what the Egyptians plan to do about their kidnapped children. Episode 3 takes us up to the end of Part 2 of the book, The Golden Compass, showing us the power of the magisterium in the form of jackbooted thugs who tear apart Jordan College and, and invade Egyptian houseboats. We see Lord Boreal discover that the missing explorer, Stanislas Grumman, is actually the hot priest from Fleabag. Or rather, that he is a man named John Perry who originally comes from our world. Lyra learns that Mrs. Coulter is her mother, and she figures out how to use the alethiometer for the first time. And she finally decides to show it to someone, Fodder Coram. It's no coincidence that the first adult she trusts enough to confide in is Egyptian. Today, we're going to take a closer look at Egyptians, who they are, and the role they play in Lyra's world and in her story. On the authority, as always, we're going to do our best to talk about the world of the books in the show without spoiling the story of the books in the show. So we'll fill in the blanks for those of you who haven't read the books in a while or haven't read them at all. We'll talk in detail about certain things from the books in this this episode, Egyptians. But we're not going to give away what's in store for Lyra or any of the other characters to the extent that we can. However, some stuff that we talk about might be considered spoiler adjacent if you have like a deathly allergy to people talking about stuff in stories. But first, let's answer some reader mail. If you've got questions or you can't figure out how to work your lithiometer, just email asktheauthority at slate.com. That's asktheauthority, all one word, at slate.com. Our first question is from Bill. Bill writes, many characters have verbally interacted with their demons on the show. Many more have not. It's unclear to me if other people can hear a demon's voice. Can you address that on the podcast? Well, we see in this episode, episode three, Pan talking to Fodder Coram. So that pretty much answers the question of whether it's possible. But according to the books, it's relatively uncommon. Yeah, there's a scene in uh, in The Golden Compass in which the first time we see a demon talking to other people besides her human, it's because her human has been mortally wounded and needs to share information with comrades, but he's in such pain and torment and so fearful that he can no longer speak. So he looks to his demon to share the information around. It's a very solemn moment, um, but it does happen. And I do like the impression that this scene gives that Pan chooses to speak to Fardacorum as a reflection of Lyra's growing trust in Fardacorum and in the Egyptians generally. All right. Our next question from Chris, who also happens to be my daughter Lyra's English teacher. Chris writes, I have a gripe about demons, responding to our discussion of demons last episode. They went so far as to explain with titles that demons and humans share a sacred bond, but it rang hollow to me. The demons themselves speak only a few lines, and when they do speak, it's hard to hear what they say. Their lines are short, and they are almost never the focus of the camera for more than one to two seconds. 
if you really want to portray the bond as sacred, and to me, this is an essential underpinning of the emotional vastness of the series, give them camera time. Show us conversations between human and demon and take your time with those scenes. All right, Chris, I totally agree with this, and not just because my daughter's grade is in your hands. I do think that this episode did a much better job of showing this bond between Pan and Lyra. We got a bunch of great scenes between them, scenes of them debating, scenes of Pan serving as Lyra's conscience, uh, and even that great moment where Lyra's working out the alethiometer with Pan's help, and we see Pan give a cute little yawn uh, right as Lyra's starting to sink into the the state that you need to sink into to read the alethiometer. Yes, and we also see more of the strained relationship between Mrs. Coulter and her monkey demon, who I find so much more sympathetic in the series than he is in the book. In the book, he's just terrifying. But in this, there's something kind of forlorn about her demon because she has sort of forsaken him. And there's the, uh, you know, she remains for me one of the most interesting characters in the series. And I find that particular relationship intriguing. But it may be that that's because I'm so familiar with the concept of demons and their intimacy with their human counterparts that I, I didn't actually miss this um, before Chris mentioned it. Although once I read his question, I was like, yeah, that's a great point. Uh, that scene where the poor demon is stuck inside the window while Mrs. Coulter is like dancing on the ledge. Uh, that I never thought I would feel sorry for that evil fucking monkey demon, but I really did at that moment. He he just, uh, yeah, yeah. That he, was... like, like everyone in England, has to deal with crazy Mrs. Coulter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's no picnic. Yep. Okay, our third question is from Abby. With the HBO series coming so soon after the release of the second part of The Book of Dust, was anyone else secretly super eager to see Alice and Malcolm in the first episode? Now, of course, uh, the answer to this is a spoiler for the later series, so I'm not going to go into any detail. But I was also disappointed at this. Um, Alice and Malcolm are characters we learn to grow and love in The Book of Dust. And, and they're characters who we had a chance to see in earlier episodes of this series. We were in locations where they, we know they are, but they don't show up. But it's not surprising to me, uh, even, though I, I, even though I was bummed out by it. If you're ever going to make The Book of Dust and Do series, if HBO and the BBC are going to do this in like six or seven years or whatever, Alice and Malcolm are big, important characters. So you can't like cast them now with like some nobody actor you pick up, you know, off the, out of the Royal School of Drama or whatever, who six years from now is going to be unavailable or too famous or dead or something uh, when you finally get around to filming those. So it's like it makes sense that they didn't do that. But I also thought it was a little bit of a bummer. I have a slightly different feeling about that. I'm... I will be very excited when we finally get our dramatization of the Book of Dust to see both Malcolm and Alice. But I also want this series to really catch on with people who haven't read the books in the same way that the Game of Thrones series that HBO did really ignited all this enthusiasm for George R. R. Martin's series of books. And I think that it would just be too confusing to someone who's completely new to the story to have a character presented on the screen named or singled out in some way that would suggest that we were going to see them play a role in the story sometime soon and then to have them just disappear that's exactly the kind of thing that that people find confusing in a big story in a big world with a lot of elements to keep track of you're not wrong 
But nevertheless, I do love fan service. Uh, all right, let's launch into our discussion of this episode, and let's actually launch straight into what we're going to take a deep dive into this episode of the podcast, uh, which is Egyptians. Um, Lyra spends most of the episode, and so we spend most of the episode with the Egyptians. It's the Egyptians who rescue her from the gobblers who have snatched her. It's the Egyptian boats that she then spends the rest of the episode on as they protect her from the magisterium jackbooted thugs, as you said, who search the boats looking for her. It's the Egyptians who we learn have a close connection to Lyra's past, to her infancy, who owe a great debt to Lord Asriel, and who tell Lyra, in fact, that uh, as Asriel is her father, Mrs. Coulter is her mother. So... Tell me a little bit about what we know about the Egyptians from the from the books, Laura. Are they an ethnic group or like a specific ethnic group? They seem to be sort of of all different races, but the name Egyptians seems to hearken to gypsies who who as you know who the Roma are a specific ethnic group. I'm I'm sort of curious and confused about who these people are and the role they play in the Britain of these books. Can you tell me a little bit more about them? Well, in the books, they are a specific ethnic group. And in particular, they're supposed to have some sort of ancient connection to the Dutch, which would make sense because they seem to come from the eastern coast of England, where the Fens are, and the Dutch are known for their canals. But in the series, they're different because the series showrunners have cast people of all different races to play Egyptians. And that gives the sense that they are people who, for one reason or another, come from all over the country and who didn't fit in, misfits or outcasts who have bound together to create this very tight, very loyal society that is that exists sort of within but not of British society. And in that way, they represent the travelers in Ireland who are people who are of Irish descent, but who lost their land or their place on the land, probably due to some reprehensible behavior by the English, to judge by the entire history of Ireland, and who became sort of caravan travelers who who roam the countryside and are similarly to gy- actual gypsies mistrusted because they are nomadic. They don't have roots in any particular piece of land. The gypsies themselves are called gypsies because people thought that they were descended from the Egyptians. Actually, the, the Roma are originally from India. But their status is very similar to the Egyptians in that they're sort of a, they can be sort of a boogeyman in Jane Austen's novel Emma. There's a gypsy encampment near the town where all the characters live, and there's a lot of concern that they're going to be the source of violence or crime, and that the female characters shouldn't walk near the encampment alone. You know, they're definitely mistrusted outsiders who are sort of also tolerated because oh, of trade or fortune-telling or any number of things that people who are basically nomadic do in order to get by. 
Yeah, we definitely get the sense that they are a kind of odd class of their own within the economy of this otherworldly Britain, Um, that they have a set of sort of tenuous protections against the power of the magisterium. It's alluded at one point to the idea that Lord Asriel himself had some role to play in the protections that they enjoy. But also that that those protections always feel under threat. In that way, they really reminded me, and I think the show intends for them to remind us uh, of Jordan College, right? Of the of the protection that Jordan College has, which itself feels is under threat because of Lyra. Once again, we have a, an institution, a group of sort of secretive group of people who are protected against the magisterium. The introduction of Lyra into their world threatens that protection, but instead of expelling her to save themselves, they gather around her and protect her because they feel that they that's a that's a an honor and a duty that they must fulfill. Uh, in in the face of magisterium tyranny, they must protect Lyra uh, against the thing that threatens her, even though it also threatens them. As you said, they have a connection to the eastern fens of East Anglia, which themselves in this world sort of mingle into the watercourses of Holland. And so the language of the Egyptians, we're told, has a lot of Dutch in it. They share with the Egyptians, uh, the, the Egyptians in the show share with Egyptians in the books a disdain for landlopers. They support themselves by trading and smuggling. And they share with Egyptians in the books, as you say, a uneasy relationship with the the landlopers who have land, who are who are not relegated to the rivers and canals of England. There's this amazing line in the Golden Compass that talks about sort of the, that uneasy relationship and the way that landlopers view Egyptians, which is that even in the fens where the Egyptians sort of have free reign, the people who do have land there always say to themselves, well, it's okay that they're there. It's okay that we have trade with them. But if Egyptian body floated ashore down the coast or got snagged in a fishnet, well, it was only Egyptian. One thing that's always sort of puzzled me about the Egyptians is that they are supposed to be one of the occasions that they have for visiting Oxford is that they participate in something called the horse fair, which is a place where horses are bought and sold. And I could never really make sense of what all these people who live on canal boats are doing with horses. I love the uh, idea of Ma Costa sailing into Jordan with like 20 horses <laughs> stuffed onto her boat. Yeah. I don't know. Where are they raising these horses? It's it's maybe they get them from some other part of England and bring them down to Oxford. But anyway, they also have a history with Lord Asriel. He was instrumental in passing some kind of law that protects them, which underlines Asriel's affinity with anybody who is sort of outside of the establishment. You know, he he admires their ways, I think one of them says. He, he respects and admires their ancient ways. And so does Philip Pullman. They the for Pullman, the Egyptians are a kind of salt of the earth, working class people whose fierce loyalty and closely held traditions are both romantic and and sort of cozy. It's 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 funny. He he clearly really loves and admires them the way Azrael does. And he has a real connection to a part of Oxford, Jericho, which is real, even though it also appears in in Lyra's books. It's one of the things that's real in 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 our world and hers, where there is a dockyard 
that was threatened by some luxury real estate developers who wanted to, I don't know, build some glass enclosed semi high rise there. And he was very involved in trying to protect that part of Oxford's history and its local color from those developers. It's a place where canal boats have landed since time immemorial. A lot of people don't realize that England, especially the flatter parts, are is crisscrossed with canals, that a lot of people live on canal boats, including in London itself, and that you can also take a holiday where you go up and down the canals on a boat, which always sounded really fun to me. If you are ever in Oxford, do visit that area because the canal boats parked there are usually really beautiful, you know, beautifully painted and colorful and decorated. It's, it's, a, it's a magical place. So Lyra in the series starts out sort of mistrusting the Egyptians and they have to earn her trust uh, in, in in interesting ways in ways that I didn't always exactly buy but which I you know I sort of understand why you make that dramatic choice because you don't you haven't had time as you do in the books to sort of set up her long relationship with the Egyptians based on their visits to Oxford and the wars that she gets in uh, with them along with her fellow Jordan College brats. Uh, there's this great scene in the book in which uh, a bunch of Jordan College kids just scream at, at Ma Costa's boat so long that Ma Costa and her whole family step out of the boat to tell them to stop and that Lyra and a bunch of other kids steal the boat and unmoor it and just like sail off into the river while Lyra searches for the bung that she believes is in the bottom of the boat that she can pull out so that water will enter the boat and the boat will sink. And she's convinced through a lot of the book that the that the Egyptians really hold this against her. Yes. And it's a it's a great way of, to emphasize that she's just kind of this wild child who has gotten up to some really serious mischief. I mean, she was perfectly willing to sink the home of these people. <laughs> Uh, but they just review it as a hilarious story. Right. Uh, yet another shenanigan that, that, that the Egyptians have gotten into. Um, the, the episode spends a lot of time building the relationship between Ma Costa and Lyra, which is somewhat just taken for granted in the books. Ma Costa instantly is a motherly figure to her. Lyra instantly feels comforted and happy with her, uh, despite her fear that Ma Costa is angry about Lyra almost finding the bung of her boat. Um, but one moment in the show that struck me very oddly that I want to ask you about is this moment when um, they're in the kitchen together and Ma Costa is teaching Lyra this trick where you throw flour into the flame and it sort of crackles. Um, and she says, you'll be Egyptian woman yet, she says. You'll be anything you set your mind to, which is a direct contradiction of a scene that has long stayed with me from the books. And I want to read it now. It's on page 112 of The Golden Compass. And it's as they're sailing to the fens and Lyra's been with Egyptians for uh, for a couple of days and she's really starting to fall in love with their way of life. The way she does uh, repeatedly everywhere she ends up in these books, she just immediately sort of assumes that identity. Lyra listened enthralled to tales of the fen dwellers, of the great ghost dog Black Shuck, of the marsh fires arising from bubbles of witch oil, and began to think of herself as Egyptian even before they reached the fens. She had soon slipped back into her Oxford voice, and now she was acquiring Egyptian one, complete with Fen Dutch words. Ma Costa had to remind her of a few things. You ain't Egyptian, Lyra. You might pass for Egyptian with practice, but there's more to us than Egyptian language. There's deeps in us and strong currents. We're water people all through, and you ain't. You're a fire person. What you're most like is marsh fire, 
That's the place you have in the Egyptian scheme. You got witch oil in your soul. So Ma Costa draws a real line in the books between the Egyptians, their race, their ancient history, and outsiders, even an outsider as beloved as Lyra, even an outsider who we learn Ma Costa nursed and took care of when she was a baby, even as close as that relationship is, there's a line drawn in the books between the Egyptian people and even as beloved a landloper as Lyra. And they erase that in this series. And I wasn't sure how I felt about that. Well, it's true that it is a violation of that idea that you really have to be born Egyptian to be a true Egyptian. But because of the way that the series has chosen to depict the Egyptians, where they seem to be a kind of ragtag band of, of people from all over the place. I kind of liked it, I have to say. I'm, I'm more taken with the idea of them as the band of outcasts from all over than with them as a sort of being very much like the actual gypsies, where I, I just can't imagine it's very easy for a non-gypsy to become as one with the Roma. I mean, right, right. <laughs> this probably never happened. And I, I mean, I do really appreciate the way that this choice has given them the chance to cast a bunch of really great actors with really great faces, uh, uh, sort of battle-weary, battle-hardened Farter Corum and John Fa, uh, all of whom have, uh, have just these really interesting uh, faces and voices and even accents. They even don't all share the same accent the way the Egyptians do. Now I am asking you to put yourselves more at risk. For Lyra. For the children we have lost. But mostly for ourselves. I am the Western King. And I'm asking you to ready yourselves to travel north. Ready yourselves to fight. And ready yourselves to bring our children home. They brought to mind, to me, and I don't know if this was intentional or if this will pay off in any way in the series, a, a kind of sense of them as refugees at, at a moment when the refugee crisis is, of course, on the minds of everyone in Europe. They're not refugees from other countries exactly, but they do seem to be refugees from inside England, people inside this country who couldn't find a place, who maybe were forced off their land, who have all banded together to give themselves a kind of agency and authority that that refugees often don't have in European culture right now. And I, I do find that heartening and interesting, and I, I'm eager to see where the series goes with that. Well, here's another question for you. Why in this episode do we get a long sequence of Tony Costa and Benjamin breaking into Mrs. Coulter's apartment? It doesn't occur in the books. I loved it. I love this sequence. So in the books, when it, the decision is made uh, that the Egyptians are going to head up north and try and rescue their kids, one thing they do in addition to designating a bunch of people for planning and mustering up stores and figuring out where they're going to go and getting the boats ready is they send a character, Benjamin de Reuter, who in the books is a grown adult, not the sort of teenagery Benjamin de Reuter of, of this series. They send him and a bunch of other spies into London to try and learn as much as they can about the gobblers, the General Ablation Board, and what they're up to, to try and help them develop a plan. Because they don't know exactly where to go up north. They just know they're going to go to Trollesund. They're going to ask around and see what they can learn. And in the books, Benjamin de Reuter and, and his spies are ambushed by the Manchesterian, by the gobblers. Many of them are wounded, and Benjamin de Reuter is killed. 
It doesn't happen in the books in Mrs. Coulter's apartment. And I love the change to it happening in Mrs. Coulter's apartment because it gives us a chance to have this bananas scene of Mrs. Coulter with her long ass revolver shooting Benjamin DeRoyter while Tony Costa like clings to the windowsill outside and watches it all happen. And of the monkey demon pinning Benjamin's bird demon to the floor and then Benjamin choosing instead of torture and giving up the secrets of the Egyptians to fall down an elevator shaft to his death. I asked who sent you, boy. There is no way out of here. So this is just you and me. Have you any idea how much pain I can cause you? And then the the bird evaporates into wisps that then the monkey sort of playfully bats around in a truly chilling moment. I, I really liked that scene. I liked how exciting it was. I liked the notion that if you're going to try and get information about the gobblers and you know, thanks to Lyra, that Mrs. Coulter is at the heart of the gobblers, why wouldn't you go to her apartment and try and figure that out? Like, I loved that. They didn't end up getting a lot of great info, but it gave us a great scene. And it also gave us the moment that this scene shares in the books, which is that it gives us the reason that Lyra ends up going up north. In the books, there's a long debate about whether Lyra's going to go up north at all. That's less prevalent here in the series. But in the books, Lyra proves her worth to this band of Egyptians who are going to go up north to rescue the kids by using the alethiometer to show, to tell what's happening elsewhere in the world. She, in toying with the alethiometer in front of Fardacorum in the books, determines that Benjamin de Reuter has been killed in his spy mission before news comes back that, in fact, that's what's happened. And that's what happens here, too, in the series. She uses the alethiometer. The first thing she learns from it, the first time it really clicks for her, is when she understands that the question she asked about Benjamin de Reuter and Tony, in this case, has revealed that one of them has been killed. And that is so valuable, so potentially valuable to the Egyptians, that they decide, well, Lyra's got to come with us. Another interesting thing about this choice that I'll point out is that it shows that Mrs. Coulter is physically dangerous as well as sort of dangerous by virtue of her powers. Yeah. And there, there's a moment where she has him pinned down and she starts talking about how it's just you and me and I can cause you all this pain. And that is almost a word-for-word repetition of what Benjamin says to the gobbler that the Egyptians have captured when he has him in a, alone in a room and he's interrogating him at the beginning of the series. And there's a sort of weird moment where Father Coram asks Lyra if it's okay with her that they're abusing this guy to get the information. I mean, clearly the showrunners had some moral issues with what's going on yeah. in both of those scenes. And maybe they wanted to make it seem as, as if there was a weird form of rough justice there. All right. So we know that Lyra has more time with Egyptians and we're going to see more of them and their ways. We're going to see more of the relationship between Lyra and Makosta, more of the relationship between Lyra and John Fa and Farda Coram, relationships that I, like you, Laura, really treasure in this book series. And, uh, and I feel heartened by the way that they're developing so far uh, in this series. But now let's talk about the rest of the episode. Uh, it's time, as always, for a Lord Boreal check-in. 
what is he up to in the multiple worlds that he can visit besides getting his car booted and staring at his enormous, like, three-hand-sized phone. I believe his car getting booted actually is the only joke in this entire episode, by the way, but it's a good one. It's pretty funny because it's just, you know, he's there in his his sort of slinking around in his beautifully tailored suit, and then he confronts this boot on his car with just complete bafflement because it just doesn't fit into the world of sort of serpentine elegance (laughs) that is the essence of Lord Boreal. Uh, But it's true. If you are bouncing around between worlds, it would be really hard to remember where you parked your car. (laughs) True that. Um, So fans of the book will realize that Stanislaw Grumman, a.k.a. John Perry, is a significant character in the series. But this subplot may seem like a digression to, to newcomers. If Lord Boreal has been visiting our world for so many years, what I want to know is why? What advantage has he gained from it? What are the results of those visits? What is he after? And why does he care so much about Grumman? He has this sort of long speech about so only some people are as brave as him to go back and forth. And so now he wants to know about this guy. I just don't understand why, if he is this agent of the magisterium, like what his game is on their behalf with all of this conspiratorial skulking around. And is it really on their behalf? There's that scene where his whoever this guy is in our world who's helping him because he understands how to use a computer is like, is this for the people you work for or is it for you? And then he says, ah, it's for you. I can tell. And I mean, we're definitely given the impression that what Lord Boreal wants is just sort of like the thrill and power of being able to accumulate wealth and influence and knowledge in both of these worlds, not just one, and to be the kind of person, the kind of man who can travel behind worlds, who has that kind of courage and, and resolve. Why did you never try to follow me? You could have. You know enough to have crossed behind me. You don't have the courage that's needed. You don't want to find a window because you're scared of it. It's true. I was scared too. But I mastered my fear. I never thought that I was the only person to cross. But until Stanislaus, I never came across anyone who was fearless enough to have done it. Yet, in Lyra's world, he seems essentially subordinate to Mrs. Coulter. Like, he keeps, he's checking in with her. He, I mean, he's playing his own game, but also he's clearly sort of a part of her plans in a way that isn't clear. And I I agree that it is not yet clear to me at all what it is that's actually driving him besides a sort of, like, vague children's book, I want to have power type thing. Like, I don't know why exactly he's doing the things that he's doing. Do the Magisterium know that he can go to other worlds? Certainly not, right? Because they they view other worlds as the greatest of heresies. Well, I know, but this is like a big, powerful religious institution. There's lots of things that they, those such organizations view as a heresy that select members of the group can indulge in. So, it could be that they do know, but it seems unlikely. It's true, But we also are giving the impression that he is not doing this on their behalf, right? And so – and certainly we don't know what advantage the magisterium is necessarily getting from him doing this. Although if he tracks down Stanislaus Grumman, there's some sense in which that mystery interests the magisterium. 
and they want to solve why it is that Lord Azrael is is conducting these experiments. And it's all tied together in a set of confusing ways that I confess that even after reading all three books 25 times or whatever, I only sort of 100% get. And the ways in which it's been tweaked or altered for the purposes of the series are as yet veiled to me. I consulted my alethiometer, but it, everything was not clear. <laughs> but most importantly, what does it mean that Grumman is played by the hot priest from Fleabag? We see him fleetingly on the computer screen. It is very evidently him. So, I mean, does it mean that Mrs. Coulter and Stanislaus Grumman are going to hook up? Okay, Dan, what I think it means is that we have this subplot, which uh, I have mentioned before, probably seems remote and kind of confusing to newcomers. But now that they've shown us the picture of Andrew Scott, the actor who played the hot priest on Fleabag, a significant portion of the audience will be sticking around just in case he might show up again. <laughs> That's true. It's very smart, showrunners. Very smart indeed. We'll see a lot more of Stanislaus Grumman, I expect, a.k.a. the hot priest, a.k.a. John Perry, and maybe uh, someone else who's who we saw in that sequence as well. But we'll learn more about that later. We saw a lot more this episode of Mrs. Coulter. We saw more sides of her. We saw her drunk side. Uh, we saw her near suicidal side as her poor monkey demon looked on from the window. We saw her murderous side with uh, Benjamin, and we saw her inquisitorial side as she headed into uh, Jordan College and had her thugs ransack the place, turn it upside down, uh, a moment that is very briefly alluded to in the books uh, is happening not only at Jordan but at other colleges, but then all the colleges band together to file a protest in support of their ancient rights, and then the magisterium has to back off. Uh, we don't see them backing off here. We see the magisterium like tearing that shit apart. What do you think of Mrs. Coulter, and are you still in love with her and the performance that Ruth Wilson is giving? Well, yes, of course. She only becomes more fascinating with each episode. There's a scene where she's interrogating the master, and she doesn't torture him, but she tears pages out of a book and then throws them in the fire, and he winces. Um, you know, she really just knows how to put the screws on. I mean, she's really frightening. She's pretty scary as a, as a sort of evil mom figure, like a wicked stepmother figure in the second episode when she's trying to control Lyra. And here she is scary in an adult way. You know, she is a, a kind of head of the SS type character and also, you know, surprisingly strong for being diminutive. You know, she, she's, manages to pin down Benjamin and begin to torture him by using her demon. But I think what we find out, once because we find out in this episode that she is Lyra's mother, a lot of this, along with the moment where she's walking on the edge of the building and almost falls and seems to want to fall and reminds us of her urge to jump, suggests this level of sort of self-hatred for her own neglect of Lyra. I mean, I, I think that's what's going on with the character. She she wants Lyra tremendously. Her maternal feelings have been awoken. But because she's sort of a twisted person, the form they're taking is this terrible fury and a certain amount of self-destructive dabbling 
that indicates how much she hates herself for having given up her child. It's a it's a great performance still. Ma Costa refers in passing and telling the story to Lyra of her parentage that Mrs. Coulter, after she had the baby and after the sort of scandal, was an outcast, that she was sort of that she was looked down on by everyone. I don't remember that at all from the books. And we never get the sense in the books necessarily that her standing was necessarily affected at all by the scandal. She seems so formidable and so well-placed within within the magisterium and so clever with the ways that she plays different factions of the magisterium against each other that we never get that vulnerability off her. And here we really get vulnerability in, in this series. And, and it seems not at all crazy to think that she is a character who was laid low by circumstance, was laid low by giving birth uh, to her her lover's child, and who then has pulled herself back up into this position of power inside the magisterium and will do anything to maintain it, even as, as you say, she seems torn and upset and tortured by her feelings of maternal loss and guilt over what she has done to Lyra. Yeah, I, I think she's an amazing character that has actually been expanded in this telling, partly from the writing, although the writing are, continues to remain kind of ham-fisted, but mostly through through Ruth Wilson's incredible performance. I would just like to point out the most ham-fisted um, piece of dialogue in this entire episode, which is um, Ama Costa in telling the story to Lyra of Mrs. Coulter and Lord Azrael, when she literally, she's... She's like, she describes Lord Agile and she says, he was high spirited, quick to anger, uh, an absolutely normal thing for an Egyptian woman <laughs> to say in describing someone she's absolutely barely ever met. I know it just, it's really like a line out of a sort of corny Victorian novel. I mean, it's a line out of the Golden Compass, but Fardacorum says it and it makes a lot more sense when Fardacorum says it. I mean, there is this way that Lord Azrael is the corniest character in the whole story. I that think we true. have to agree. Yeah. 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 So let's talk about our response to the episode. Dan, what did you love? What did you hate? I I like this episode. I thought this episode moved the story forward in fun and exciting ways. I thought that big digression from the book, the foray into Mrs. Culture's apartment by Benjamin and Tony was great and very exciting and yielded the same results as scenes in the in the book, but with more adventure and, and with more stakes for a character we care about, this character of Tony, who we don't spend a lot of time with in the books. Who he's a he's an older kid among the Egyptians, a young man who Lyra respects and who gets in a lot of scrapes, but he doesn't sort of have this kind of wild streak at, that Makasta is trying to keep him away from. I really liked it. I, I you know I I felt this was a big step up, in part because it put us in a world that I like so much in the world of the Egyptians and, and animated that world in, I thought, interesting and delightful ways. I, I feel like ever since in our last discussion, you talked about how on the nose the dialogue is, it's been bothering me more and more. I love so many things about this episode. I love James Cosmo's portrayal of Fodder Gorham. I just, I just think that character is wonderful and he's just incredible in conveying the gentleness and the wisdom of, of of and the sort of sadness of this character but i felt like if 
anyone use the expression, keep you safe or keep me safe, (laughs) one more time, I was just going to scream. I mean, you could make a drinking game around it. And it's just a kind of a hokey line that people use in sort of badly written or just formulaic television a lot. And I I really, like the Lyra, as you would have mentioned last time, the Lyra of of his dark materials was never running around asking that people keep her safe. That was the last thing she wanted. Absolutely not. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, so yes, originally the Egyptians did not plan to take her to the North because why would you take a little girl with you on this dangerous adventure? And then they chose to take her because she could read the alethiometer, but never at any point was Lyra running around asking people to protect her. And she always wants to run right into the heart of the danger because she believes that she can handle it. And usually she's pretty good at it. So, um, so yeah, I was kind of annoyed by a few of those things, but I continue to just love all of the performances and to, to even Lord Boreal, who is just sort of like, um, just sort of being evil off in the corner for, for local color. I love him. I enjoy him so much. He's, he is, uh, He's a, a snidely whiplash kind of character. I love how he manages every space that he gets himself into in our world is like impeccably designed. Like he has his beautiful riverside cottage yeah. with its glass <laughs> walls. And then when he uh, and then he has a scene where he has to meet some military guy or someone, some secret guy to just hand over the file. But he meets him in a perfectly lit balcony where they're both lit from below with like sort of pinkish, blackish, white light. And they look gorgeous. Yeah. But this is like the unobtrusive place he did this handoff. Yeah, he's, he's just, he said, first I was annoyed by him, but now I'm coming to enjoy whatever it is he's supposed to be doing. Um, the thing that I like the most about this episode is that they're heading north. I love any scene where someone goes up to the bow of the ship and the wind is blowing their hair back and the sea spray is in the air. That's just That's a call to adventure, and I love to see that. I would point out one other thing about this episode that is different from the previous two episodes, which is that it has a different director. The first two episodes were directed by Tom Hooper. This episode was directed by Don Shadforth, whose work I don't know that well, but she is primarily a music video director, and she um, has directed a bunch of really interesting and visually striking music videos. The one that many American listeners might know of the best is the Kylie Minogue video for Can't Get You Out of My Head, um, which is from the early 2000s, which is a like totally crazy, futuristic sci-fi deal. Um, but she's, you know, she's as many music video directors do. She has a very striking visual sense. And I was taken with a lot of the visuals in this episode, not just Lord Boreal's um, fancy Riverside house, but uh, but uh, but the ways that Lyra was shot on those boats, um, the lighting inside the boats and the and and uh, the the view we got of like the interior of the elevator shaft inside uh, Mrs. Coulter's apartment. Uh, I, I saw a real difference in the direction and energy uh, and pacing of this episode, uh, which is something that I also liked about it. It, it did not sort of sometimes slow to a crawl the way Tom Hooper has a little bit of a tendency to do. Okay, well, that's our episode. We'll be back next week to discuss episode four, Armor. The Authority is hosted by me, Dan Coyce, and Laura Miller. On Twitter, I'm at Dan Coyce. 
Laura is at Magician's Book. Or if you want to reach out to us, you can drop us a line. Email us at asktheauthority at slate.com. Our producer is Phil Circus. Engineering assistance for Melissa Kaplan. Slate's editorial director for audio is Gabriel Roth. And remember, without stories, we wouldn't be human beings at all. Until next week, thanks for listening.